Great to be with you this morning and great to have a chance to share with you from God's Word today. And uh, we've got a very short passage, which I know you're excited about because it must mean a short sermon, right? Well, who knows? I don't know. But uh, anyway, let's, if you could open it up, page 5 there, and just we'll look at these three verses together. Uh, I do think that they're the kind of verses that are sort of loaded with uh, explosive content. So we might see uh, what is there for us. And uh, here, uh, John kind of summarizes what happens when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival. And we know that Jesus, from John's gospel, would go each year and he goes three times to the Passover. That's where we get our chronology about Jesus and his ministry from, that it must have been around three years because there are three visits to the Passover. And it sounds really good. Sounds really great what is going on here. Now, It says, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Well, this is great. Some really positive responses to Jesus. They see what Jesus is doing. They put their faith in him. Surely this is worth celebrating. This is exciting. It's really great. And after all, aren't the signs that Jesus was doing meant to provoke faith? At the end of the gospel, John is going to tell us that he has recorded these signs for us so that we can put our faith in Jesus and so that we can have life in his name. So this is exactly the kind of thing John says is meant to be happening. But look at what he goes on to say. Verse 24, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. And at this point, you're probably kind of asking, well, is, this, is John the kind of guy who wants to find the dark cloud in every silver lining? Is he just a miserable kind of person uh, looking for the bad side of things? Well, I take it that John is pointing out something really important for us here. And he, that while he's showing the good reaction to Jesus, uh, he's telling us that, that while that is good, that is not something that Jesus himself got excited about. And that is worth us noticing. Look at what he goes on to say. And I think it's it's surprising and it's disturbing. Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Uh, Literally, what it says is that though people believed in Jesus, he didn't believe in them. It's the same word uh, in verse 23 and in verse 24 describing that kind of action. Though people trusted in Jesus, he didn't trust them. He didn't trust in them or entrust himself to them. And then John generalizes from that in the last verse. He didn't need any testimony. And literally, it is, he, he didn't need any testimony about people for he knew what was in people. I think our translators don't really like repetition, but actually the repetition is helpful for us. He did not need any testimony about people because he knew what was in people. And uh, that may not sound too serious, but I wonder if you might put yourself in the, in the situation there and sort of personalise it. I don't know if you ever do this. Do you ever imagine that you were, you were in the gospel story? Perhaps imagine if you were one of the disciples or if you were one of the people there when Jesus was doing his ministry, how you would have responded. 
uh, how you might have re reacted in various situations, what you might have done differently to the disciples. But if we see what uh, John is saying here, we realise that if we had been there, if I had been there, Jesus wouldn't have trusted me. And if you had been there, Jesus wouldn't have trusted you either. Jesus, the experience of rejection and betrayal that he went through, the desertion that he experienced from the disciples, those things did not come as a surprise to Jesus. That's made quite clear to us through the Gospels. Jesus knew what people are like. Jesus knew what to expect. Jesus knew what was going on with people. And he didn't trust people. He didn't trust them. And he wouldn't trust us. Uh, sometimes Jesus is just plain rude about people. At one stage in the gospel, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, he just straight out calls the disciples evil. You are evil. He says to them. Um, and this just actually generally fits with the Bible's assessment of where we are, of what people are like. That we are in rebellion against God, that we are children of wrath by nature, that we are lost to God, we are alienated from God, we are enemies of God. But here, in John's words, it's put in the most simple relational terms. We are untrustworthy, that Jesus doesn't trust us and wouldn't trust us. So here really we're talking about the problem of human beings. We're talking about the, the depth of the problem of humanity. And it is worth, I think, considering the, the width of the problem and the length of the problem and the depth of the problem that is being brought to our attention here just in these short verses. The width of the problem in the Bible is that this affects everyone. That all people, everywhere, have this problem with regard to God. That there are not exceptions to this problem. And that you are not an exception to it, and I'm not an exception to it. And we would like to make ourselves an exception to this. We would prefer to be able to say, well, look, the problem really is out there. It's not here. The problem is out there. It's other people. It's the system. It's the man. It's whatever, that we, we want to think of the problem as external to us. But the problem is everyone, and there are no exceptions to it. Uh, it extends to every, all people everywhere. It's the universal human condition. And similarly, when we think about the length of the problem, it's a problem for every human generation, that everyone... Uh, takes part in this rebellion and it is passed on something that we inherit from generation to generation. Something on one hand that we can't help and on the other hand something that we participate in willingly. We're both victims and perpetrators of sin and rebellion against God. It's not exactly part of what it means to be a human being. It's not intrinsic to human life but it is now the default setting of humanity and not something that we're going to somehow evolve out of or progress beyond something that happens to every generation 
I've been listening recently to those David Bowie albums from the early 70s and uh, they're really fantastic records and uh, full of lots of contradictions but one of the things that he seems to have thought was that the, the emerging generation uh, the emerging generation uh, was going to be different from previous generations that it was actually going to be like a, a new species a new genus it was going to be not going to be another generation of Homo sapien. It was going to be a new, some kind of beyond the current uh, human being. It was going to be different. And that the new generation was going to be a new race or a new species. Well, I don't think in retrospect it's turned out that way. Uh, it would have been nice. Uh, but in fact, uh, that the current generations have inherited more or less the same problems. We might express them in slightly different ways, uh, but that problem of rebellion against God continues. So that's the, the width of the problem and the length of the problem. Uh, but the real issue, I think, ultimately, is the depth of the problem. How deep does this problem go in human life? And Jesus says, well, it goes to the very depths of who we are. It goes to our inmost being. It goes right to our heart. This is perhaps the most threatening thing of all. Let me read you some words of Jesus from Mark chapter 7 about this. Uh, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Jesus here is dealing with a controversy about food and what people eat. Uh, and pointing out that that's not the real issue. And he goes on, he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus says it goes right to our heart, and when the Bible talks about heart, when Jesus talks about our heart, he's talking about our inmost being, the things that we most love, the things that we most desire, the things that we most yearn for, what we're truly deep down committed to. And Jesus says that is affected by our rebellion against God, so that the evil things that we do actually come from within us. Uh, and if it's down to our heart, then it really means there is nothing about us that is unaffected. There's no part of us that, are, that is somehow um, spared from the problem of sin and rebellion. So sometimes we might think, well, look, this really only affects our, our will, say, our choices. Or maybe it's just the fact that we have to live in these human bodies that causes us to do these things. But Jesus says, no, actually... It's really at the core of who we are, our heart. And it amounts in ultimately to a kind of slavery. Later in John's Gospel, Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to sin. That actually the, the things that we do wrong are evidence of being trapped, being trapped in this continual rebellion against God. Uh, and what that means is, 
In fact, even our very best efforts, even the, the good things that we try to do, whatever good they may have in them, always, to some extent, also contribute to the problems of the world. That everything we do actually also contributes to what's wrong with the world. So sometimes you'll hear people say things, and it's, I think it's an understandable, good, helpful thing to say something like, don't be part of the problem, be part of the solution. Have you heard people say things like that? And yes, of course, we would want to do that. That would be the right thing to do. But if the problem goes so deep in our lives, then we're always contributing to the problem, even when we're trying to be part of the solution. That is uh, the tragedy of where human beings find themselves now. Well, is this just totally miserable? Is this the worst thing you could come and hear on a Sunday morning? Well, in some ways it is miserable, but I want to say that it's actually very helpful to us. It's very helpful, even if it hurts to hear. Uh, it's helpful in the same way as a clear and definite and accurate diagnosis is helpful to hear. That it clarifies where we truly stand with God and what our need is. You see, if we were really trustworthy people, then we wouldn't need a saviour. If we're really worth being friends with, then we wouldn't need outside help. If we were basically good, then we would, all we would really need is advice and encouragement. We would need Jesus who comes to give a helping hand, who offers some life hacks to us, uh, gives us a bit of coaching along the way. But if this is true, then it's clear what we need. We need the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We need the Good Shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. We need the resurrection. We need to be born again. That's what we're going to hear about next week. So I think, yes, very helpful for us to hear about the problem and to be reminded of uh, the seriousness of the human problem. Uh, of course, lots of people want to minimise that problem in various ways and suggest that things are not so bad. Uh, the most important person to have said this was a guy called Pelagius. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he was uh, a, a figure within the church uh, around the years, the late 300s, early 400s AD. And he said, look, sin is a problem, but we're not really deeply affected by it. It's not something that we inherit. It's certainly not something that where you know, other people affect us. We each have our own responsibility before God, and we each need to take responsibility for our own lives, and we need to try and learn from Jesus what's right and do what he teaches and obey the law that God gives and we will be able to do the right thing and please God and be okay with God. That was Pelagius's teaching. Jesus is a teacher and an example to us, um, but we basically have within ourselves all that we need to live God's way and do the right thing. It sounds kind of Christian and it's kind of attractive. It's kind of empowering, isn't it? It says, you can do it. You can do it. And so lots of people have found this attractive. 
But ultimately, uh, Pelagius' teaching was condemned and he was declared to be a heretic. And the reason is this, because what he taught was cruel. What he taught was cruel. Cruel in the same way that if someone uh, goes to a doctor and they have a serious disease, someone goes to a doctor, say they have tuberculosis, and the doctor says to them, look, really, all you need is uh, some Panadol and a bit of a lie down. You should be right. Well, that's, that sounds good, but it's deadly. And I think that so it is with Pelagius and his teaching. Uh, and all the versions of it that we hear in the world today, sometimes even within Christian circles too. It's cruel to tell someone, you'll be all right, you can do it, when actually they need radical help from outside. The good news of the gospel, of course, is that Jesus provides more than just a diagnosis of the problem. Um, And that Jesus actually came not because we are good people, who that he really wants to come and hang around with, but despite the fact of who we are, despite the fact that we are untrustworthy, Jesus still comes to us to be our saviour. And in fact, the coming of Jesus into the world breaks the cycle of human sin. Jesus being born, Jesus coming into our world from outside the human system, as it were, entering into human life, actually breaks the cycle of human sin, opens up the possibility of a different kind of humanity, a different kind of human life. Opens up the possibility for us that we might be like Jesus rather than like Adam and everyone else. Jesus comes into the world as the light of the world, full of grace and truth, and he makes a new humanity possible. You can become It's true, the kind of person that you were meant to be and the kind of person that you were made to be. Not through greater effort, not through more, just through more attention to God's word, but because Jesus comes to change and transform us to help us to become children of God and the image of God. And Jesus deals with the problem in its length and its breadth and its depth. That is what Jesus is doing by going to the cross. And it's worth just thinking about the death of Jesus on the cross uh, in terms of what it tells us about these things. First of all, we see the cross as the ultimate expression of human sin and human untrustworthiness. That when God comes into our world, we see how we react. We want God dead. But we also see in the cross the ultimate expression of of God's love for unworthy people, untrustworthy people. Jesus, by dying on the cross, mends the breach, fixes and addresses the problem in its full ugliness. He makes a full and perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Each generation, all people everywhere, right down to the depths of who we are, pays for every sin. Well, how can we uh, work this into our thinking about things, if this is true? First of all, I want to challenge you to think about how you can work an understanding of the depth of the problem into 
our thinking about the way we do our lives together. Let me give you a couple of examples, but I think that you will need to think more broadly about it. But if we don't believe that human beings are basically good, then it's going to actually change the way we do various things. Let me uh, mention, first of all, the way we uh, think about how we organise our society and our government. Uh, and this would go for the government of our church as well, how our church is run. We would, if this is true, we, what we want to do, I think, is to spread power around as much as possible. Uh, sometimes we say, uh, you know, those words, I think Lord Acton said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's an insightful thing to say, but I think it's actually ultimately wrong that the corruption is already there in human beings, if what Jesus says is true, and it's just having power brings it out. Uh, and the amount of power brings, it, brings out uh, the depth of it more and more. So if this is true of human beings, we would actually want to spread power around. We would want to have lots of transparency, lots of accountability, lots of checks and balances, and we would want to see that in our society generally, but also in our church and in our churches, uh, that we would love uh, to see uh, that kind of uh, way of recognising that people can do easily do what is wrong. Does that make it harder to do things if we have government like that? If we have church government like that? Yes, it makes it harder to do things. And I want to say, I think that's okay. I think that's a, that's a reasonable price to pay. Well, what about another issue? Here I'm really going to wade into uh, the controversy. What about parenting? How would this affect the way we think about parenting? Uh, as parents, uh, and... Uh, some of you here are parents, some of you may become parents in the future. Most parents have a desire to protect their children. We want to protect our children from the evil influences of the outside world. And that is a completely understandable desire. But if what Jesus says is true, uh, it's also ultimately bound to fail. Uh, children are certainly naive about many things, but they are not innocent. And if you have children, you will find that you do not need to teach them how to sin. Uh, and so what, what should parents really be aiming at? Well, certainly you can try and protect your children, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, but really, it's not really about protecting them ultimately or even teaching them to be nice or good people. Because if this is true, and this is true of every generation, then what children most need to know about is about the Saviour, Jesus. And they need to understand about repentance and forgiveness and restoration. That is, the best thing that could happen in your family is that people understand what it means to say, I did the wrong thing and to ask for forgiveness, and to be restored, to be brought back into good relationship, that the family actually model what it is to uh, seek forgiveness and find forgiveness. Okay, well, what about some other implications of what Jesus says here? 
first of all, uh, I think it will mean that we, th- the way we think about Jesus uh, really fits in with the way we think about the depth of the problem. If the, our problem is deep, goes right to our heart, then we don't just need Jesus the teacher, though Jesus is our teacher. We don't just need Jesus the example, though Jesus is definitely our example. We need Jesus the saviour who does what we cannot do. We need Jesus the circuit breaker, God's way of intervening in this world for our sake. We need Jesus the substitute, who is God's offering in our place. In a Pelagian kind of church, uh, people will appreciate Jesus, they'll revere Jesus, and they'll honour Jesus. But in a real church, people will love Jesus and worship Jesus and sacrifice for Jesus because what he does for us is so much more profound and costly. This is also going to affect, I think, the way we think about what it means to be in a relationship with God because if the problem goes right to our heart, then uh, the challenges for us in terms of changing are much more profound. One of the things that this means, I think, is that as we hear God's word, uh, we will be frequently disturbed and upset and not at peace by what we hear. That if uh, our lives are in some ways in their default setting against God, then God's word is going to sort of challenge and upset us. And I want to say that that is a good thing. It's a good thing when you feel that happening in your life. And actually what you're doing is letting God have his full authority. And you don't really want a God who just agrees with you or who just cheers you on all the time. A God who's just on your side uh, and who says, you just go for it. Uh, actually, that's a sign that the God that you're worshipping is not the true God. Tim Keller uses the illustration of, the, of having a Stepford God um, and referring back to the old movie, The Stepford Wives, 1975, you probably don't remember it, but it was remade more recently, but it's a really interesting story about these men in this town called Stepford uh, who gradually replace their wives with obedient robots. Uh, and the wives just say, yes, yes, honey, no, honey, they just do whatever their husbands say. And uh, he says, well, you could, you could also create a God like that. God that says yes to you all the time, uh, but doesn't really change you, not really the true God. But if you actually know the true God through the Bible, then that God will challenge you uh, in ways that are sometimes painful. And I think one of the things that happens perhaps is this, that when, we, when people become Christians, initially they experience quite a lot of change. Uh, because it's about changing the things that are on the surface, on the outside. We've got a bunch of things to deal with, and often we're able to, uh, with God's help, deal with some of those surface things fairly quickly. And that's a really positive experience. But over the years, we start to actually either need to address the things that are deep down in our heart, or we just kind of ignore them. And either way, uh, and that way you can kind of feel like you're stuck in the Christian life. You're not really changing. There's nothing really going on uh, because we want to avoid the pain of dealing with the reality of our hearts, the things that we really love. 
and when those loves are out of order, when those loves uh, are not in the right order, then that actually that's painful for us to confront those things. So the real change in the Christian life after the first few years becomes the painful business of dealing with what's in our heart and maybe we want to avoid that. But if the problem does go that deep down, then that's what we need to be prepared to do. You might remember the character uh, in uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia books called Eustace. Um, and Eustace is this horrible boy, um, but he eventually finds out about Aslan. Um, and in one episode, Eustace gets turned into a dragon. Do you remember this? He gets turned into a dragon and uh, he's, he hates being a dragon. And he doesn't want to be a dragon anymore. And he tries to rip off his dragon skin, but he can't do it. But then eventually, what has to happen is he needs to let Aslan do it. And Aslan uses his terrible, sharp claw to take the dragon skin from Eustace. And this is what Eustace says about it. The very first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Sin is not essential to our humanity, but it is deep, deep down. It's now our second nature. And so it requires that deep, deep surgery to remove from our lives. And as Eustace says, that can be painful. But if we take this seriously, then we can see that it's necessary. That if it's true, then we can be honest with God about who we are. We can be honest with that, with each other about who we are. We can be honest with ourselves about the depth of the problem. And we can let Jesus begin to address it deeply in our lives. Next week, we're going to think about how Jesus does that as we think about what it means to be born again. Let's pray. Uh, we thank you, our Heavenly Father, that your word contains uncomfortable truths. We pray in your mercy that you would help us to see the depth of the issues. We thank you so much for sending Jesus to be our saviour, and that we can celebrate together what he has done for us. And we do pray in your mercy and as your spirit works for deep transformation in our lives. We pray that you put, would please go deep down into our lives, that you would change our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.